Books Podcast, episode 137, Tipitaka, part 73, in which I will recite Pakitia, part 78, for sure. Definitely at least 78, um, if this is your first time seeing me. Do go ahead and click here instead. Better to start with episode one of Tipitaka. Start at the beginning with the big rules, kind of the big story setting up the reason for the rules and then how the rules get started. And then you get the four big rules and you get the 13 almost as big rules. And then you get a lot of different degrees of rules. And then eventually you get to part 78 of the fourth level down of rules, which is where we are today. So better to start there. <clears throat> um, our special guest today is Adi Buddha, the, uh, the oldest Buddha, they say. Um, this is, uh, as far as I understand, something that comes from Vajrayana Buddhism. I want to share a personal story but, you know, sometimes, sometimes these are small, you know, sort of frivolous, uh, you know, anecdotal, interesting, oh, hey. <laughs> and so I share them at the beginning before the reading. But this one is kind of probably longer and like heavier a little bit and um, not specifically related to the teachings of Lord Buddha indirectly, more personal, more about my journey. So I'm saving it for the end. That way you can listen to the reading and I'll let you know when the reading is over and you can move on and uh, get started with the rest of your day. And those of you who might be interested in you know, the rest of it, uh, can can remain and stay. So I'll leave it at that for now, and I will go ahead and get started with today's reading, which, just as a reminder, comes from not Vajrayana, not Mahayana, not what is traditionally called Theravada, but going back to what might be called early Theravada, certainly what the Theravadans would call Theravada, if that makes sense. Sort of like if you ask a Catholic, where can I find the church that was actually established by Jesus? Um, you know, his disciples and all of that. They'd say, well, right here, you're here, you've arrived. Um, but if you ask someone outside of that organization, they might have a different response. That, that's all I'll say about that. Not drawing too much of a comparison between Theravadan orders of 2022 and the Roman Catholic Church. Just one very minor, minor comparison that's flawed. Full disclosure, right? So we're not talking about um, post-Ashok Theravada. We're talking about pre-Ashok Theravada. We're talking about Tibitaka. We're talking about Vinaya Pitaka. We're talking about the original rules that were given by the original Lord Buddha. He's thought of as the original Lord Buddha in a certain context. However, there's nothing mentioned about him until centuries after the one that I'm referring to as the original Lord Buddha, the one that would be thought of in Theravada as the only Lord Buddha, I think it's safe to say, right? Although uh, they, the, the Theravadins, the post-Ashok Theravadins, actually much later than Ashok Theravadins, and the Theravadins of today would acknowledge um, Maitreya, the Buddha yet to come, and Lord Buddha, who's somewhere. He's, he's around here somewhere. Not in this frame. Oh, wait. Yeah, there's baby Buddha up there. Um, so, yeah, we're talking about the original. I'm emphasizing that for a reason that has to do with the story that comes after the reading. So, anyway, <clears throat> let's get to it. I'm just going to read one for today. Expiation. Pakitiya. 78. 
At one time, the Enlightened One, the Lord, was staying at Savati in the Jetta Grove in Anattapindika's monastery. Now at that time, the group of six monks, you all know them, quarreled together with well-behaved monks. The well-behaved monks spoke thus, quote, Your reverences, this group of six monks are shameless. It is not possible to quarrel together with them, end quote. The group of six monks spoke thus, quote, Why do you, your reverences, bring us into disgrace by speaking, parentheses, of us, close parentheses, as shameless, end quote. Quote, but how could you, your reverences, hear, end quote. Quote, we stood overhearing the venerable ones, end quote. Those who were modest monks, three dots, spread it about, saying, quote, how can this group of six monks stand overhearing monks when they are quarreling, disputing, engaged in contention? End quote, three dots. So eavesdropping, spying, if you will, sort of, <clears throat> sort of what children would call spying, which is more like eavesdropping, right? Quote, is it true, as is said, that you monks stood three dots engaged in contention? End quote. Quote, it is true, Lord. End quote. Remember the monks that hid in the bushes while the one monk was doing inappropriate things with a female monkey? Those monks didn't get in trouble for eavesdropping. Different situation, I suppose. The enlightened one, the Lord, rebuked them, saying, quote, How could you foolish men stand, three dots, engaged in contention? It is not foolish men for pleasing those who are not, parentheses yet, close parentheses, pleased, three dots. And thus, monks, this rule of training should be set forth. Whatever monks should stand overhearing monks when they are quarreling, disputing, engaged in contention, saying, Apostrophe, I will hear what they say, end apostrophe. If they, okay, so this is a quote within quotes. This is a proper quote within quotes. If having done it just for just this object, not for another, there is an offense of expiation, end quote. So the monks were spying on the, the monk that was with the monkey. They weren't doing it just to, just for what purpose? Um, I will hear what they say. Okay, they were. They were wanting to see what they did. Anyway, whatever means, as promised, flashback. Whatever means, he who, on account of his relations, on account of his social standing, on account of his name, on account of his clan, on account of his morals, on account of his dwelling, on account of his field of activity, in parentheses, an elder or a novice or one of middle standing, this is called whatever. Thank you, me, from several months ago. Monk means flashback. He is a monk because he is a beggar for alms, a monk because he submits to wandering for alms, a monk because he is one who wears the patchwork cloth, a monk by the designation, parentheses of others, and parentheses, a monk on account of his knowledge, <clears throat> excuse me, on account of his acknowledgement, a monk is called, quote, come, monk, and parentheses. A monk is endowed with going to the three refugees. A monk is auspicious. A monk is the essential. A monk is a learner. A monk is an adept. A monk means one who is endowed with harmony for the order. The, with the resolution at which the motion is put three times and then followed by the decision with actions, parentheses, in accordance with Dhamma and the discipline, and parentheses, with steadfastness, with attributes of a man perfected. Whatever monk is endowed with harmony for the order, with the resolution at which the motion is put three times, and then followed by the decision with actions, parentheses, in accordance with Dhamma and the discipline, I think that's implied, right? Maybe that's what they're saying. Okay, end parentheses. With steadfastness, okay, actions, like not just any old action, like actions that are, anyway. With steadfastness and the attributes of a man perfected, this one is a monk as understood in meaning, in this meaning.
Okay. Thank you, me, once again, from several months ago. When monks means when other monks. Are quarreling, disputing, engaged in contention means, parentheses, when they are engaged, uh, close parentheses, with legal questions. Should stand overhearing means, if hearing them, he goes away thinking, quote within quotes-ish, I will reprove, parentheses, him, close parentheses. I will remind, parentheses, him, close parentheses. I will reprimand, parentheses, him, close parentheses. I will make, parentheses, him, close parentheses, remorseful. I will make him ashamed. This is an offense of wrongdoing. If standing where he hears, there is an offense of expiation. If going behind, wait, I will reprimand him, there is an offense of wrongdoing. Ah. If hearing, he goes away, thinking, I will reprimand him. Okay. If standing there, if he continues to listen, then it's expiation. All right. If going behind, he goes quickly, thinking, quote, within quotes, I will hear, end quote, within quotes, there is an offense of wrongdoing. If standing where he hears, there is an offense of expiation. If going in front, he stays behind, thinking, quote, I will hear, end quote, within quotes. There is an offense of wrongdoing. If standing where he hears, there is an offense of expiation. Having come to a place where a monk is resting, or to a place where he is sitting down, or to a place where he is lying down, taking counsel, he should cough, he should let him know. Should he not cough or should not let him know, there is an offense of expiation. Okay, so if you hear people starting to talk in a private way, and you cough to kind of let them know that you're there, then you're, you're good. You, you're not, if you intentionally remain quiet so you can overhear, that's an offensive expiation. Having done it for just this object, not for another, means there comes to be no other object, whatever, or whatsoever, parentheses, for which, close parentheses, to stand overhearing. There's the big loophole, of course. I mean, okay, if it's not to reprimand, reprove, remind for what he's saying in private, what other reason? Maybe to find out if he's uh, encouraging schism or something. But Lord, I was uh, eavesdropping so that I could find out if he was a part of what's-his-name's schismatic conspiracy. That's probably okay, I would imagine. If he thinks that one is ordained when he is ordained, perhaps not. That's just totally speculation, by the way. Parentheses and is just, close parentheses. Uh, it's just interesting to note that, like, if he's only doing it to reprimand, remind, you know, reprove. I mean, what other reason is there? Maybe, maybe they'll say. Sometimes when I stop and speculate, then it explains. So I'll keep reading. If he thinks that one is ordained when he is ordained, parentheses and, close parentheses, stands overhearing, there is an offense of expiation. If he is in doubt as to whether one is ordained, three dots. If he thinks that one is not ordained when he is ordained, three dots, offense of expiation. If he stands overhearing one who is not ordained, there is an offense of wrongdoing. If he thinks that one is ordained when he is not ordained, there is an offense of wrongdoing. If he is in doubt as to whether one is not ordained, there is an offense of wrongdoing. If he thinks that one is not ordained when he is not ordained, there is an offense of wrongdoing. There is no offense if, having heard, he goes away thinking, I will desist, I will refrain, I will be calm, I will set myself free. Hmm. All right. If he is mad, if he is the first wrongdoer. The eighth, meaning the 78th. Cool. All right. Don't eavesdrop. Okay. As promised, um, I'm going to go ahead and do a proper closing for the people who are only here to listen to recitals of Buddhist teachings and not personal stories of whoever the chud is that's doing the reciting. That, that's me referring to myself as a chud. It's a derogatory term. Um, so... I will go ahead and perform the closing prayer and blessing and say goodbye to some of you. And then the rest of us will continue afterward. Okay. To the north and to the south, to the east and to the west, 
to the spirits of light among us and to the spirits below. We send out our reverent love and compassion. May all beings be happy. May all beings be serene. May all beings be in peace. Oh. Until next time. Are they gone? All right. So let's talk. Um, gosh, how much to tell. I know I've given like little snippets and little windows into my past, my personal path. Um, I am of the view that everyone's journey is their own. Everyone's path is their own. If a person chooses to make their path a part of a group, that's their choice to do that for however long they choose to do that. If they choose to leave that group, their path and their journey continues. I mean, this is kind of obvious, or at least it should be. I, I tend to emphasize that more than I emphasize the importance of sticking with your guru or staying with your temple because I think that others already emphasized that too much. That's my opinion. I'm um, offering myself publicly here to add a little bit of spice, just a little bit of a little bit of flavor. You know, I mean, not that there isn't already flavor, but just to just to add to the uh, the voices that are talking, and there's reasons. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Um, first, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my dad. My dad, um, when he was young, he started out Christian scientist. But by the time he was a teenager, he was very much, he was calling himself a neo-Druid. Now that refers to the, ancient, the religion of the ancient Celts before the Romans came, before the pre-Christian Romans came, let alone before the, the pagan Romans came, what they call pagan, which just means non-Christian. I think there's a, there's a, a word in, in uh, Buddhism for non-Buddhist. Um, and uh, of course in Judaism there's, there's Goyim or... Um, there's, you know, a lot of people have words infidel or whatever, you know, people have words for, for the other. A lot of people, not everyone. But anyway, um, so from there he kind of moved on. I mean, I'm just loosely cause, and quickly telling his story. From, from this ancient Celtic sort of intuitive thing that he was tapping into, you might say, and researching and learning about as much as if there was information available in the 1950s about that and early 60s. From there, he, he moved to what might be termed Hermetic Kabbalah, which generally speaking is kind of Greco-Egyptian, Judeo-Christian, woven together, not like jumbled and mixed, woven in a very organized way over the course of centuries and very intentionally sometimes in secret sometimes in the open and uh, culminating in an organization that uh, existed in basically Germany and then England and then was sort of the popularized version was in England and uh, you know things like tarot cards as they're known basically today more or less or at least 40 years ago, 50 years ago, um, and all of that kind of thing. Certain approaches to astrology and, uh, and Western ceremonial magic, they say. Um, it's kind of rooted, it's, it has its roots in a Christianized Kabbalah, but it brings in elements of other uh, mostly European traditions, though with a little bit of what they call Eastern influence. And I... I I personally feel that a lot of the motive 
behind the development of that tradition was in seeing in you know when the redcoats were occupying the land that I'm currently on um, in seeing how people practiced their what they might call faith uh, practiced their traditions practiced their cultural rituals and things like that I think there was a little tinge of jealousy that uh, that arose and uh, you know some became deeply fascinated with the, the, the ritual and culture and so on that goes on here, here being India, I'm talking to you from India for those who didn't know. Um, but then others sought to discover, rediscover, dig down and find, you know, something similar in their own culture uh, from their own ancestors, from, you know, in their own language, with their own religion. And anyway, enough about that. So, in the 1960s, mid to late 60s, um, my dad then started to change tracks, not entirely, but he was on kind of a blended path throughout the 70s, uh, where he had kind of one foot in that uh, Western Hermetic Kabbalah tradition and the other in what could loosely be called a Nyingma Tibetan Tantric Buddhist tradition. Um, and by the time I was growing up, he had transitioned entirely. So he had all that other stuff in his background and he would use it when talking. He would refer to it and, you know, he would teach me. Um, but his focus when I knew him was, was on what, again, could loosely be called a Nyingma Tibetan Tantric Buddhist path, or as I later learned, could also be called Vajrayana. So then he passed away when I was a teenager. And so he, in a sense, he was my guru in the sense that that's a thing. He was my teacher, in other words. He was the one who taught me. And uh, so knowing the journey he went on, I decided to, after he died, I didn't have him there as a teacher. So I decided to seek out other teachers. And I decided to follow the the progression that he went through. So I focused on Druids and uh, Celtic, you know, things. And, and then, then I focused entirely on on uh, Hermetic Kabbalah and Western ceremonial magic. And I, did, I went deeper into that than I meant to. But I always had kind of in, in the, the innermost part of my heart this, what I had called, what my dad had called Tibetan Buddhism, this Tibetan yogi way, path, approach. Um, and so kind of in that Western world, I was the Buddhist or, you know, the, the one that was always kind of coming from that perspective. And when I would look at something, I would see it kind of through those eyes, as far as I knew those eyes at the time. Long story short, um, a lot of these rules, for example, were, were, you know, like not upheld by the leadership, you might say, of the temple I was in. And after 18 years, I left. But in the midst of that, there was, you know, we talked about schism a couple books ago, I think. Um, there was a schism, which is a brutal thing to go through when you're like, when your whole life is wrapped up in a temple. Um, and it was a difficult situation and a complex situation that I'm not going to go into here, and I've gone into it quite a bit on my other podcast. Um, but in around 2011, I, uh, I sought refuge, you know, found solace in, you know, getting away from, after all the phone calls and emails and dealing with people, you know, should I leave the group? Should I stay with the group? Should I go with the new, the group that's newly forming or stay with the group that's, that they're leaving because of the corrupt leadership and all this stuff. And it was just brutal and day in, day out. And you wake up thinking about it, sleep, go to sleep thinking about it, dream about it, and then deal with it all day. And so um, I would get a little bit of peace by reading Shobogenzo by Ehe Dogen, the Zen master from the 1200s. 
and I would listen to uh, Tibetan chants while I was reading Dogen. And I did that for a long time. I did that mostly on the train, on the way to work and on the way coming back from work. And uh, so eventually that led to taking up yoga and so on. And this is all stuff I've told before. And I'm going to skip from here and get to the point. Um, in 2017, uh, basically, to cut short, there was an individual who was referring to me as her uh, Tibetan Buddhist teacher. And I, it was, that disturbed me because I, I had taught her some things, but I was on her resume. She put me on like her website as her Tibetan Buddhist teacher. I, was, I don't think that I can do that. I don't think I could be a no, I, that's not right. And I was like, I mean, no, you know. So, I mean, kind of, I already had wanted to come to India and this part of the world and go on a Buddhist pilgrimage and so on and so forth um, and see Lumini and Bodh Gaya and all the places, the four main places where the Buddha lived and was born and taught and so on. And um, so I eventually, to cut short, I did that. Um, it kind of dramatically. I announced to everybody that I was leaving and I was going to live in Nepal now for the rest of my life, you know, or maybe India, I wasn't sure. Um, probably not Tibet because of the occupation, but anyway. Um, so, so I did. I sold everything, basically, and I went to Nepal and uh, kind of with an open heart and that's when I started to um, experience and learn things that were at once eye-opening and some of them disappointing. And I, you know, quickly came to realize that I would never be accepted by the community that I had always considered myself a part of. And, uh, you know, I was, I was an outsider for sure. Some people would be very friendly toward me, but it was always kind of with an edge. It was always like I was being sold something. And I got, to, I, got, I got close to a few people, close enough to find out that there are actually schools where people learn that certain types of tourists that come to Kathmandu are interested in Buddhism they don't really differentiate between Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism and other forms of Buddhism. They just think that that's Buddhism and don't acknowledge anything else as Buddhism or are kind of unaware that there are other forms of Buddhism, it seems, in a lot of cases. But anyway, um, so they're, they're actually taught in these schools that um, when foreigners come looking for Buddhism, that you be very friendly to them, show them the Buddhism, and give them the feeling that they're after. And you say these things. You can give them these teachings. You talk to them about how the Lord Buddha sat under the tree. You talk to them about this. Talk to them about that. Show them these places, those places. And the cool thing is because of the exchange rate, then when you ask for money, or you tell them about your hardships, and you tell them about your situation, for them, a thousand rupees is nothing. It's just ten dollars. So you can just easily get a thousand rupees, which for them, in many cases, is ten days' work. And so people um, come to specialize in in targeted. Well, anyway, that's a thing. And, uh, you know, and there were a few times where someone would take me aside, someone who appeared to be a monk, taking me aside and being very friendly. Oh, wow, that's so great. Your dad, oh, your dad was Tibetan Buddhist. Oh, that's so great. Oh, that's so, you have such good karma. You're so lucky. Um, so I had these medical bills, you know, and it was, it was always very disappointing that I was, I was always the mark, which is, uh, you know, the person that you're trying to sell something to. I was never actually uh, a brother among them. 
never could share the sangha. It was all it was always a one way, targeted sort of um, predatory thing, friendly predatory thing, smiling predatory thing. You know, for money, always. Um, because I was male, if I were female, then it might be targeted for something else. But anyway, that seemed to be the overall feeling I was getting. I mean, I loved it. Don't get me wrong. It was, I mean, that was the people that would talk to me. The other people weren't, wouldn't talk to me. And I got vibes from certain people. I would go into temples and I would kind of look at the, the monks there and they would be laughing, joking. And I'd be like, oh, that's nice. Or they'd just be, and then they'd see me and then they oh got to act like a monk you know okay whatever so I never like felt like I wanted to come come up to somebody and say teach me <laughs> you know um, so I visited a lot of places I don't mean to talk badly about anyone um, I'm just telling you kind of the, the feeling I had the experience I had I was there for four months and uh, kind of I mean, I, I'm trying to think of how the timing was because I tra transitioned from there into India and I met Priyal. <clears throat> and Priyal, well, you know, that's, that's a little too personal for this. But we were two of a kind and uh, both kind of outsiders and both on our own path and both, you know, um, kind of dissatisfied with... Uh, what we saw around us and anyway so I mean one of the things I uh, you know that originally originally drew me to her was finding out that she's actually from that part of Bihar where all this stuff went on that was very fascinating to me that that her ancestors you know if if not followers of Lord Buddha were, you know, at least saw him walking by, you know. Um, but anyway, obviously that wasn't the only thing. But around all that, within all that, there. Th this is where I get to the point. Um, I'm not going to name names. I'm going to use fictitious names and fictitious organization names. There, it, it involves three people and uh, lamas, monks, um, Tibetan or near Tibetan adjacent, you know, i.e. Bhutan, Nepal, famous people. One of them, we'll call Fred, uh, traveled from, you know, Tibet area to America, that that kind of part of the world, and uh, established what I'll call hippie Tibetan Buddhism. I'm not going to use the name of the organization. And he was known for, you know, being wise. People called him enlightened. A lot of people will defend him and say, "You have no right to criticize a Buddha, an enlightened one." People get really you know, kind of guru worshipy. Um, but he drank alcohol, smoked cigarettes, snorted cocaine, and had sex with a lot of women. Allegedly, right? I mean, some of those things were well documented, and some of them are more like rumors. But anyway, he died young, relatively young. And while he was in power, he, you know, it was a very famous, big, wealthy organization that he established because it was during a time when there was a backlash to a whole lot of, you know, the, the, the traditional sort of, the traditional Western society had culminated in, you know, this sort of McCarthyan, anti-communist uh, sort of fascism uh, in which, you know, Viet the Vietnam War was going on to try to keep the Russians from turning Vietnam communist 
you know, or, or the the Russians and the Chinese from from having a an influence on the economic structure and political philosophy of a country on the other side of the world. So people from America were being sent there to go fight those people, right? And in the end, they lost. Um, and so kind of in the midst of all that, there was a lot of backlash against traditional Western values, traditional values in general, traditionalness in general. Part of that was very positive. For example, the, the sort of patriarchal male-dominated and racist aspects of, of the, uh, the structure were being questioned and rejected in a lot of cases. And uh, kind of along with that and also separate from that, there were people that were rejecting Western religion, whether, you know, uh, they were rejecting sort of this atheistic based mentality and they were rejecting uh, Christian based mentality and Jewish in some cases and uh, becoming yogis, becoming Hare Krishnas and becoming a part of the organization called, that I'm calling hippie Tibetan Buddhism run by Fred and so Fred was very popular and uh, there were a lot of people clamoring to have time with him and uh, so you know there was accusations of various levels of inappropriate behavior with women although some of them surely you know wanted to be with him but anyway um, so there was a younger monk that was seeing this and he went, we'll call him Jimmy so Jimmy was seeing Fred, and he was openly like, God, he's like a rock star. He's got women everywhere, women all over him. He's just so cool. Oh, I want to be like Fred. So when Fred died, Jimmy took over hippie Tibetan Buddhism. And then he was in uh, Little Buddha. He was the, one of the two monks, not the main monk that was doing all the talking, but the other monk. Anyway. Um, with Keanu Reeves as Lord Buddha, one of my favorite movies when I was like five. Um, and then, long story short, right around the time that I was in Nepal going to all these temples, it came out that he had been angrily beating his students and raping them for years. And it had been covered up for years by people in the hippie Tibetan Buddhist organization. And that was very disheartening, obviously. It was kind of a huge blow to hear all that. Because, you know, I mean, I, I had heard so many things about scandals in the Catholic Church and all of this. But I was kind of able to, in my mind, put that in a category of its own. That this isn't real Tibetan Buddhism. This isn't you know, and then I went to Bhutan also right around this time. Here's some video footage of my trip to Bhutan. And I felt like I was like in a beautiful, beautiful, like the heart of the heart of what was sacred to me. It was what I described it as if Hayao uh, uh, Miyazaki with uh, Studio Ghibli or Ghibli, anyway, the the one that makes like Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away, if he envisioned like what he imagined like Tibet to be before the Chinese occupation and illustrated it in a cartoon, it would be Bhutan. That was, and that's a very high compliment um, coming from me. So I felt like I connected quite a lot with the essence and current, you might say, like a river current of what it was that I had always considered myself to be by virtue of my dad and his influence and teachings on me. And uh, so then I went to India and uh, still kind of considering myself Tibetan Buddhist. And, you know, they, there's a lot of Tibetan Buddhism in India. So Priyal and I, you know, she was kindly, gently, like she was like, I, I also like Tibetan Buddhism, but you know, Buddhism was around for a long time before Tibetan Buddhism, and there are some Tibetans who kind of arrogantly 
claim to be like the real Buddhism. And then reading Words of My Perfect Teacher, like on page one, it talks about how Bodh Gaya used to be the heart of Buddhism, and then now it's Tibet. And it's been, you know, Bodh Gaya and India have been overrun by non-Buddhists, and the enlightenment current of Buddhism is no longer in India, now it's in Tibet. And it's like, yeah, okay. That's part of the teachings. Um, sort of like you know, old sort of medieval Catholicism would say that, you know, it used to be that the Jews were the important people, but now it's the Catholics. You know, like it's, it's similar. <clears throat> From my point of view. Anyway, so kind of in the midst of all that, I, uh, I read an article that absolutely broke my heart. That, that there was a, a llama that was the head of a lineage in Bhutan. He was in Bhutan. The head of a lineage in Bhutan. And I'll call this guy Mark. So we've got Fred, Jimmy, and Mark. Right? And Mark had come out and said that, you know, the women that accused Jimmy of rape that the women were wrong. Because when you become a disciple in Vajrayana Buddhism, you do whatever the guru says and you don't question it. And if you break with that sacred relationship, then you're the one who did wrong, not the guru. Because when you enter into that relationship, if they decide they want to beat you as a way of helping you to attain enlightenment, that's skillful means. It's crazy wisdom. I think that goes back to uh, what they call the divine madman in English, the one that sort of uh, the origin of all the penises drawn on everything. Um, I forgot his name. He was the one that, if you wanted to see him, you had to bring a bottle of wine and a beautiful woman. So the inside of his temple is the whole wall is old bottles of wine. I thought that was cool, right? Of course, uh, someone like that would be popular with the hippies and that kind of energy, you know, I mean, rejecting traditional values. But there was this part I mentioned how, you know, rejecting patriarchy and racism and sexism was part of that, that hippie movement. And then also rejecting Christianity in favor of something like Tibetan Buddhism was also part of that hippie movement. And so there's places where that they overlap. And I can definitely relate with that. I'm against patriarchy. I'm against things like rape. The problematic aspects of cults and uh, other religions and sexism. Um, and I also have a fondness for Tibetan Buddhism. So I'm kind of like, I'm on both sides of that can't I call counterculture movement, you know? Although in a lot of ways, my dad didn't consider himself a hippie and, and uh, considered himself to be very conservative, but he, he, he wasn't in a lot of ways, but he kind of kept that quiet because <clears throat> he was a college professor and he was older than the hippie generation. But anyway, so, but there's, a, there, there, the, there's this phenomenon outside of that that I was starting to, that was starting to come into focus of misogynistic, what today is called anti-woke assholes uh, who, who, who think they're right in the name of Tibetan Buddhism. And, uh, and this guy, Mark, was in a position of authority, speaking from a position of authority, defending Jimmy, the one who raped the women, the one who beat the people, the men and the women, whereas part of his hippie Tibetan Buddhism that's still a very large organization today. That was it for me. That put, that was the final nail in the coffin. I I no longer, you know, wherever before that, wherever Priel and I went, I wanted to go to the Tibetan Buddhist temple. You know, I just wanted to be in there, and smell the incense, and kind of be present in that environment and meditate. And I felt like there was a sacred, beautiful thing happening that in conjunction with Buddhist philosophy was enriching my soul. But after, after I read what Mark had said in defense of Jimmy, 
I, that was gone for a few years. And um, I reconnected with, with Kess, my dad's old friend Kess Fry, who you're probably seeing on the screen. Um, and uh, when I was in Bhutan, I had picked up this robe, and Kess in private when he was instructing me and teaching me about a lot of the basics of the, uh, the five Dayani Buddhas and the, the Taras. And he was kind of like filling in a lot of the things that I, I didn't have much awareness about. We talked for a long time. I interviewed him a few times. Those interviews can be found here. It's probably 12 hours of conversations, mostly you know me asking Kess questions and him talking to me about Vajrayana Buddhism and sometimes about my dad. And, their past i i remembered i won't uh reveal too much but i remembered you were wearing something uh one time when we we had in private and uh i decided to go ahead and wear this i've never wear this wore this publicly this is my Nyingma robe <laughs> picked up oh. in bhutan i just for the audience i know when a white guy dresses in something from another culture especially if it's religious it's generally considered totally uh, inappropriate and cultural appropriation. I'm not trying to sell anything. I, it's just, it's only with great respect that I wear this. And, uh, you know, anyway, <laughs> but it was inspired by you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So I reconnected with Kess and I kind of told him about <clears throat> that, how I had felt disconnected from all of that. reading what Mark had to say about what Jimmy had done. Mark was saying that, you know, if, if Jimmy genuinely did something wrong, if he was doing these things out of lust or anger and not out of crazy wisdom or skillful means, then he'll be punished in the Avicii hells. And so either way, there's no point in us judging. So I talked to Kess about it and, you know, he helped me to, to see that people have a, a corrupting influence wherever they are, that people get drunk on power, that people get motivated by the wrong things, that people move away from the point, people, um, whether they be Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or atheist or it doesn't matter that people are people in a sense and sometimes unfortunately they wear llama robes in the you know and uh, positions of power and positions of authority get abused really easily the ego it's hard for the ego to handle being in a position of power without abusing that power and authority and respect. And, uh, you know, he helped me kind of like get through that. And I decided in the end, I reread the Dogen books that I had read back in 2011. I, I had given them away, my original copies, so I got more copies. They're here in the bookshelf. And uh, I reread them and kind of reconnected with my own love of Buddhism by way of Zen, you know. And uh, I wrote down the names of all the teachers and all the, the, the teachings and the great masters and so on and so forth that Dogen made reference to. And then I proceeded to begin collecting different scriptures and books based on kind of his recommendations, who he talked highly of, with the goal in mind that I wanted to reconnect with a pure Buddhism in a similar way that kind of at the same time and previously I had wanted to reconnect with a purer form of that hermetic Kabbalah or the Rosicrucianism, you might say, going back to the 14 and 1500s. Um, before the corrupting influences of 
this past century, you might say, kind of the person I've talked about before, the head of that uh, organization I was part of for two decades. And so kind of coming from all of there, I was like definitely not interested in joining a temple or, or finding a guru. Not to say that anybody's wrong if they have a guru. You know. um, it's definitely not for me, as I've mentioned on here before, for all the reasons that I've already said. And someone told me recently that, you know, I, I, I said my dad had raised me in a kind of Nyingma tradition, and he was saying, find your root guru. And I was thinking, well, the two things that come to mind about that is uh, my dad's guru was an Italian man whose family sold weapons to the Tsar during the Russian Revolution, and he's, of course, long since died. And uh, I went and found his other students, and one of them is cool, but generally speaking, I, I don't... They, they fall into that category of, like, still upholding problematic aspects of the patriarchy, but with the Tibetan Buddhist flavor and arrogance. Okay. Is what it is. Not for me. My dad wasn't, like, a carbon copy of his teacher. He learned from his teacher, but he processed it on his own. He wrote this, which is sort of like, this was my, it's not, not as thick as the Bible, but this was basically my Bible growing up. After my dad died, I found out he had written this book, Transformations, by John Dan Reed. I published it. He, he never published it. I published it just uh, last year. And um, so, so my dad was my guru. And I guess, so I guess that makes me my root guru. <laughs> and I'm not taking on students, you know. But given that Mark, the, uh, the one who very insultingly, arrogantly, and problematically, while being, having the, by, you know, the face of someone who automatically kind of gets respected because he's, he's from Bhutan, he's from Tibet, and he wears a llama's robe. I mean, in a way, I, what happened was I got clickbaited yesterday. This is why this is all coming up now. Is I had kind of like, well, I hadn't thought about any of this in a long time, but I got clickbaited into watching a video, and I, I hadn't seen his face before. I had only read that article. And he was saying some things that I was like, oh, wow, I like, I like what he said there. But then someone said, you know, what do you say to people who say that you're just imitating Fred? You remember Fred, the, the one who founded um, hippie Tibetan Buddhism. And so Mark, the one who had defended Jimmy, the one who wanted to be like Fred and then did it in a really, like, even worse than Fred did. Um, so this Bhutani Lama, head of, head, head of a lineage today um, said the, the fact that you even compare me to Fred is such a high compliment and I was like what am I watching right now and so then I looked up the guy's name and lo and behold he was the one who had uh, publicly blamed the victims and told them that it was because of their repressive culture because they they were raised in an Abrahamic culture it's because of Abrahamic religion Judaism uh, Christianity and Islam and how repressive it is that they were playing the victim and uh, you know saying that the sex that they had with Jimmy was a kind of coercion and you know the thing with people in power of religious organizations is they don't actually have to hold you down and tie you up you know what I mean like they, they can just sort of imply that you'll be kicked out I mean, that's kind of what the whole Me Too movement was about, is like people, you know, oh, you want your career to continue. Well, then, you know. So that goes on in Hollywood, and it was being called out. And then it got called out in hippie Tibetan Buddhism, too. And, uh, you know, then there's these people that, the, the anti-woke, the backlash, saying, you know, oh, all this all this feminism, all this wokeness. What? People don't want to be coerced into having sex with their boss anymore? 
and they're standing up for themselves and you're against that, I'm sorry, but that puts you kind of in a piece of shit category in my mind and it's hard to come back from that, you know, as far as I'm concerned. But when I was reflecting on you know, I mean, I, I immediately said, his channel, it only has 5,000 subscribers, thank God, this this Mark Guru, head of the lineage. Um, but it actually has the word cool in it. It's like cool something, you know, he's the cool guru, the cool Tibetan uh, Buddhist guru. And, you know, he's so cool that he's thinks it's a compliment to be compared to Fred and defends Jimmy blames the victims and it was just it it just really really reaffirmed to me a couple of things I mean at that time and realizing it by you know seeing oh okay he's that guy okay don't recommend this channel to me don't show me these videos like I just I don't want to have anything to do with this guy um, that I'm on my own path I finally did obviously come back around to a love of Buddhism and, and Vajrayana Buddhism. I don't call myself a Vajrayana Buddhist because I'm not in a guru-disciple relationship and I guess that's a, 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 a requirement for a lot of people so I don't publicly call myself that. Uh, someone once said I was Sutrayana because I'm trying to get there with the sutras and the books. All right, sure, Sutrayana. Um, but definitely wanting to get back to the basics, wanting to get back to what did the Buddha say, starting at the beginning. And I don't mind if it takes me 50 years. I don't mind if I'm 110 years old by the time I come around to an in-depth understanding of the whole picture of Theravada, with Mahayana built upon it, with Vajrayana built upon it, and all of those teachings. I don't want to get them from a guru. I don't want to deal with these people in today's world at all. But, and I wrote a poem about this, it'll be in my next poetry book, but I realized, I realized something is that I, I owe a little bit of thanks to Mark because the fact that he speaks with authority, he has this megaphone, he has fans, he has audiences that come to see him speak in the name of Buddhism, in the name of Tibetan Buddhism. And he wears a lama's robe. Is the very thing that gives me the confidence to wear this robe in front of you right now because I think it's important it goes beyond like what you know on one level I don't want to be judged for cultural appropriation if you've seen all 136 137 of these videos then you've heard me talk about that long time ago in the early days um, a year ago <laughs> a little less than a year ago I've been doing this for 11 months basically um, but my concern about being judged or disregarded for wearing this robe or criticized or, or condemned for wearing it is outweighed by my disgust that someone like Mark is out there with a megaphone soiling, soiling the good name of Tibetan Buddhism, of Vajrayana Buddhism, and of Buddhism itself. So I think that my voice, even though it doesn't have much to say, I have things to say, like everything I said just now, everything I've been saying for the past 40 minutes. And also, I think it's important to get back to the basics. Don't hit people. Don't coerce people. Don't psychologically, emotionally, and verbally abuse people. 
don't rape people. In fact, just don't, just don't. Not if you're gonna wear a llama's robe, right? I, of course, am married, so I am not Sullivan, but I'm not a teacher, not, not interested in beating or having inappropriate relations with students, not interested in having students, frankly. But I am interested in saying everything that is coming out of my mouth right now publicly to whoever hears it, because people like Mark exist. So thank you, Mark. And I'll see you in hell. No, that's not how I'm going to end it. <laughs> that's how the poem ends. I was, ha I was having feelings. Not very Buddhist. You know, that's why I, why I should save this for the end. Who's watching this anyway? How do you feel about what I'm saying? The thing, you know, one of the things before I realized who he was, he was talking about separation of truth and wisdom and culture. I was like, I agree with this. But then, like, reading other things that he had said in response to, like, he's, he's defending fascism in Burma and the oppression of the Muslim minority in Burma, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, so people were criticizing him for that, obviously and rightly. And... Um, So he's talking about, you know, Western culture lumping together Islam, Christianity, Judaism, and colonialism, and shopping malls and chewing gum, all in one category. And that, bleh, wanting to spit all that out from a Buddhist position, culturally, you know. I mean, every once in a while, someone will click angry, seeing just from seeing the image of a white guy wearing this. Yeah, I, I agree that we should separate truth and uh, wisdom from culture. But apparently the guy who said it, Mark, only, only agrees with that statement when he's talking about certain things, not when he's talking about other things. So it's one of those things. So use, use that as a as a tool to make a point and then ignore it and do the opposite as a, as a blunt backwards tool to make a different point, whatever, inconsistency. So I don't know, you know, I, I think that, um, I just wanted to share all that kind of to get it out and to kind of like document it. I feel like now it's like it's recorded. So it's like it's written down and now I can forget about it. Now I can move on. And um, you know, you know where I'm coming from and you know why I'm slowly reading the old scriptures, why I'm not interested in joining a temple or having a guru. And uh, again, my path is my own, it's not yours. I'm I don't think that in any way you should be like me or, you know, make your path look like mine or agree or disagree as you will with what I'm saying. But I think that given the fact that people like that have a voice that I, I, I ought to have a voice too. So that's pretty much all there is to it. And I will mostly use my voice to read the Polytext Society. Thank you. Translation of the original Poly scriptures. For now, for these next few years. And I will try to minimize the sort of thing that you've had to tolerate for the past uh, 45 minutes of me talking about other stuff that's less important. So, with that... I will let it all go, let Mark go, let the aesthetics go, and the, the, the interwoven, that was another thing that happened when I was in Bhutan, was there was a Drukpa temple, like one of the important temples, I think in Paro, and uh, my guide was taking me into the temple, and then at a certain point, we got to like the inner part of the temple, and they, the people there got really upset, and uh, you know, it's like, okay, and so my guide was saying we have to leave. I was 
why, why did we have to leave? And he said, oh, no foreigners allowed in there. And I, I got vocally mad. I got mad. I was like, where in fuck did, uh, you know, would, would Siddhartha Gautama have said anything about foreigners? But no, no, he wasn't, he wasn't even from Bhutan, you know, like, you guys are the foreigners. What are you talking about? Not letting, not letting a foreigner into the, the, the inner part of the temple, of your Buddhist temple. You call this Buddhism? You know, and all, I was really upset. I was really upset. And then there was this astrologer right outside that was like, when's your birthday? Oh, you're going to break your leg this year, you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, ha, huh. you know, I was just like, kind of like, okay, disillusion level one, disillusion level two, you know, like I was experiencing the beauty and absorbing a lot of the, you know, things I like, but discovering new things that I definitely didn't like, you know. So, but overall, I love it. But I, I, I want to offer the reading of the original teachings of Lord Buddha himself, which include don't hate people, you know. I think it should have a little more weight than it does. All right, that's it out of me today. I already did the closing, so um, I will just say I'm going to take a few days off from this and uh, focus more on meditation and my own inner work and kind of reflect on everything that I've just said. And uh, I hope you're doing well, whoever you are, wherever you are, whenever you are. Be nice to people. Don't be a problematic guru. You know, if nothing else. All right. Until next time.